Well, happy Easter. We're so glad you've joined us on this Resurrection Sunday. The story's told about a widow that owned a beautiful rabbit. It had gorgeous white fur. This rabbit was the joy of her life. She would often be seen holding it or playing with it in her front lawn. Well, this woman had a bachelor who lived next door who had a dog, and often this dog was allowed to run freely in the neighborhood. One day, the guy was out doing some yard work when his dog returned home, and to his horror, the dog had in its mouth a filthy white rabbit. And the guy immediately realized that it was the neighbor's rabbit, and he wondered what to do. He knew that she loved that rabbit so much. Should he go next door and tell her what happened, that his dog had killed her rabbit? He just couldn't muster the courage to do that, so he came up with another plan. He brought the rabbit inside, and he he washed it up, and then he took a blow dryer to it, and then when he was done, he brushed its fur. It looked beautiful and, and soft and clean again, and then he knew that she kept this rabbit in her kitchen, in a cage, and so he snuck next door. And he put the rabbit inside the cage and then he slipped back home. About a half hour passed and all of a sudden he heard a piercing scream coming from next door. He ran next door and he saw his neighbor holding the rabbit and he said to her, what happened? Did your rabbit die? She said, no, it's back. He said, what do you mean? She said, it's back, it's it's back. It died yesterday. I buried it and now it's back. There are very few things in our human experience that are more permanent than death. Death is something that casts its shadow on all of us, despite all the effort that we put into trying to prolong our lives. Every one of us is one day going to face this thing called death. And perhaps it's because of the power and the permanency of death that nobody expected that Jesus Christ was going to rise again from the dead on that first Easter morning. From a human perspective, Jesus had succumbed to the ultimate darkness, death that was so irreversible. His friends and his enemies had watched him die. There was no doubt in their minds that he was indeed dead. They had watched as a soldier pierced his side and out came blood and water, a sure sign from a medical perspective that he was dead. And they'd watched him being taken from the cross and wrapped in 75 pounds of spices and then placed in a tomb. Darkness had won. Death had proved itself to be greater than Jesus or had it. What no one understood at the time is that this was God's plan all along, that Jesus had to die in order to deal a death blow to death itself. He had to die in order to face death squarely and announce, I am the author of life. I strip you of your power. Now, if you doubt whether or not he had to die in order to defeat death itself, consider what the writer of Hebrews had to say in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Under the inspiration of God's Spirit, he wrote, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Let me read that again because I don't want us to miss it. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. This, of course, is a reference to the Incarnation. 
when at Christmas time, what we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus came into this world, the Son of God and God the Son, taking on flesh and blood. The writer continues, for only as a human being could he die, which again makes tremendous sense. As God, he couldn't die. But then it goes on to say, and only in dying, and here's my point, only in dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. People are terrified of death. Although one of my favorite quotes is that of Woody Allen who said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. He said, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But death's shadow hangs over all of us and many are terrified by the prospect of death. But Jesus came into this world and he died and rose again so that he might defeat death and the devil. And the reason that this is the case, why this works, why Jesus' death brings about the death of death itself was in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, death came into the world. God had told Adam and Eve, the day, from, uh, the day in which you eat from that tree, you will die. And Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sin entered the world and Adam and Eve ended up dying and so all their descendants faced death. But Jesus came into this world, the sinless one, and he came specifically so that he might take the penalty for us to die in our place and for our sin so that he could offer us eternal life by defeating death. Now on this Easter Sunday, I would like to address two main questions that are worth our consideration. The first one is this, how do we know that it really happened? And the second question is why does it matter? Let's talk about this first question first. How do we know that Jesus really rose again from the dead? I'd like to suggest three reasons. First of all, the eyewitness accounts. Even in our judicial system, we acknowledge that there's value in hearing the stories of people who have actually been there and witnessed what happened. And the more witnesses you have, the more compelling their argument. In the case of Jesus Christ, there were 11 guys who had walked with Jesus for three years. All of them testified that he rose again from the dead. In addition to that, other people also witnessed his resurrection. I find this very significant. Most noteworthy to me, though, is this. A significant change took place in the lives of these guys. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, all of them fled in fear. They were hiding in darkness and despair. Any hope that they had that Jesus might be the Messiah were buried with Jesus in the tomb. And so when we get to the end of the gospel accounts, we find these guys in the dark, consumed by discouragement. And even after some women came to them and said, we went to the tomb and some angels told us Jesus is alive, they refused to believe it. They didn't listen to the story. In Luke 24 and verse 11, we read, but these words seemed like them, or seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. There may be a lesson here, by the way, for us husbands to listen to our wives, although I'm not sure I'm the one to talk about that. But even after they heard the news that Jesus was alive, that very evening we find them hiding in fear. In John chapter 20 and verse 19, we read, in the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. But then the verse continues, and it makes all the difference in the world. We read, then Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace to you. Suddenly Jesus was right there in the room with them. And here's my point. 
this changed these guys from being cowardly and fearful to becoming bold witnesses for Jesus Christ. By the time we get to the book of Acts, we find them boldly speaking about Jesus Christ, and they spread the word throughout the world. And history records that these guys died as martyrs for their faith. And I find that very, very significant. Not one of them would recant their message. All of them, of course, were saying the same thing. All of them were telling everybody that God sent his son into this world to die in our place and for our sin. And he was crucified on a cross and buried. But three days later, he rose again from the dead and we're witnesses to it. We saw it with our own eyes. And if you'll put your trust in Jesus Christ, you'll receive the gift of eternal life. That was the message that they were all speaking when they were arrested. And they were given opportunities to recant and they refused to do so. I find this again very compelling because people will not die for something they know is a lie. People may die for a lie, but people don't die for something they know is a lie. And so I find the eyewitness accounts very compelling. I was not there, but I believe their story. But there's a second reason why I'm convinced that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, and that is that Jesus told the people ahead of time that it was going to happen. They really should not have been surprised when they found that the tomb was empty because Jesus said it would happen. And this is something that was prophesied in the Old Testament as well. King David, who penned the words in Psalm 16 and verse 10, wrote, For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. Sheol is a reference to the place of the dead. This was written over a thousand years before Jesus was born, that he would not end up being stuck in Sheol in the place of the dead, and that his body would not decompose. Throughout his ministry, of course, Jesus had told both his friends and his enemies that he was going to rise again from the dead. In fact, it was because of that claim that the religious leaders sent some guards to guard his tomb after he was buried. We find that story in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62, where we read, the next day which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, after three days I will rise, he said, after three days I will rise again. Therefore, give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. Then the last deception will be worse than the first. You have a guard of soldiers, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. Then they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. The irony here is that these soldiers ended up being the very ones who saw the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They were placed there so such a story would not spread. Of course, the religious leaders weren't expecting a resurrection. They just put the soldiers there to make sure no one stole the body. But in so doing, they guaranteed that the only explanation for an empty tomb would be a resurrection. Of course, Jesus did rise from the dead, and the soldiers witnessed it. And we read about that in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 2. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. They were frozen with fear. 
And so again, in sending these guards to the tomb, they guaranteed that the only plausible explanation was a resurrection. Jesus' body is not there. And so I find the eyewitness accounts compelling, and I find it compelling that Jesus told the people ahead of time it was going to happen, and it did. But a third reason why I'm confident that Jesus rose again from the dead is that there's no other explanation for an empty tomb. And this relates to my second point. When it comes to the empty tomb, there are only two possible explanations to what happened to the body of Jesus. One is that he rose again from the dead as he said he would do. The other explanation, of course, is that someone stole the body. I think these are the only two choices. Either he rose again or someone removed the body from the tomb. I would argue that logically it doesn't make sense that anyone would have stolen the body. Who would be some of the candidates that might be thought of as ones who might steal the body of Jesus? Well, let's start with the disciples. Maybe the disciples stole the body of Jesus. I'd suggest that's impossible, partly because they weren't expecting it and partly because there were soldiers that were guarding the tomb at the time. No, the main reason why they wouldn't have taken the body, though, is because they knew he was alive afterwards. They spent 40 days with Jesus after he rose again from the dead, and they knew that he was alive. And so they would not have made up a story like this and then died as martyrs for a story that they had made up. Again, I don't think anybody would make up a story and then when their life was on the line, choose to die as a martyr for it. And so they didn't steal the body. They wouldn't die for a lie that they were spreading. If the disciples didn't steal the body, then there's a second possibility. Maybe it was the Jewish leaders. But I would argue that the Jewish leaders didn't steal the body either. Why? Because once the story began to spread that he had risen from the dead, the Jewish leaders would have provided the body. They would have produced it at that point, and that would have stopped the story from spreading. And we wouldn't have a world today in which we have two billion people that come under the umbrella that's called Christianity. No, the Jewish leaders did not steal the body either. The only group that then third might have stolen the body would have been the guards. But I can give you a couple reasons why I'm convinced that they didn't steal the body either. First of all, they had no motive for doing so. They had no reason to steal the body. As the expression goes, they didn't have a dog in the race. But second, there were significant implications to this body disappearing for them. We have to understand that in biblical times, if you were to guard somebody or something and that person escaped or you lost that thing, it was your life in exchange for that thing. There was a significant cost involved. If these guys had fallen asleep, for example, their very lives would be on the line. No, they were doing everything they could to make sure that body stayed there. I suspect at the time that they thought this was the easiest gig they would ever have to guard a corpse. They had no idea what was about to happen. And then all of a sudden, an angel appears and rolls away the stone and Jesus is alive. The only thing they knew to do was to go to, to the Jewish leaders and tell them the story. And we read in the gospel accounts that the Jewish leaders paid them off to spread the story that they had all fallen asleep and that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. I would find, though, in that first century that anyone who'd believe that would be very, very foolish. Anyone that would accept that false narrative because everybody knew that these soldiers would not fall asleep on the watch 
There was too much at stake to do so. So no one stole the body, and yet the tomb was empty. So I'm convinced that the resurrection really took place for these three reasons. Number one, the eyewitness accounts. Number two, that Jesus told people ahead of time that it was going to happen, and it did. And third, there's no other explanation for an empty tomb. But why does it matter? Why is this such a big deal for us as Christians? Well, I want to explain that in a minute. But first, we're going to sing a song for you titled, I Won't Move. It's a song that begins to answer the question why it matters so much. It begins to explain how Jesus came to bring us out of darkness into the light. Let me read the chorus of this song. When my eyes cannot see, it's your voice that's leading me out of darkness and into light. It's your love breaking through the night. I won't move until you speak. I won't move until you speak. We're gonna sing this song for you and then I'm gonna come back up briefly and explain why it's so significant that Jesus rose again from the dead.
the darkest moment in human history occurred when we crucified our creator. I think the brightest moment occurred when he rose again from the dead. The darkness of night was met by the dawn of a brand new day. But why does this matter so much to us, that Jesus rose again from the dead? Well, when we align ourselves with Jesus, when we put our trust in him, three things are true. First of all, we have the promise of eternal life. Because Jesus rose again from the dead, those who put their trust in him will one day rise again as well. We also will receive a glorified body like Jesus had, and we will receive this gift of eternal life. You know, when I want to know something about something, I go to somebody who knows something about it. I go to someone who's been there and done that. And when I think of eternal life and when I think of death and resurrection, I think of the only person who ever was there, the only person who defeated death and rose again from the dead. And this is the one that's able to offer to us eternal life. In the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3, 16, we read, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The reason we know we can have eternal life because, is because Jesus defeated death once and for all. He answered the question, what happens when we die? The Apostle Paul was writing to the believers who lived in the city of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. 
He wrote, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This phrase, fallen asleep, is a reference to death. And first fruits is a reference to the very first part of a crop that's gathered in the springtime. It's a promise of more to come. And this is what Jesus was for us. He was the first one who rose again from the dead, opening the door for the rest of us so that there might be a huge crop of people who have eternal life. And it's because of the truth of this that a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He's implying it's gone. There's no victory in death anymore or any sting. And then he writes, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ overcame death for us so that we might receive the gift of eternal life. But there's a second thing we receive. The resurrection means for us that we have the presence of Christ with us. The point I want to make here is that ours is a living Savior. The leaders of other religions came and they died and they were buried and their tombs are still here and their bodies are still in their tombs. But if you go to Israel, you'll find that the tomb of Jesus is empty. He rose again from the dead and he's alive. And he had promised that this would allow him to be with us always through his spirit. In John 14, after Jesus told his disciples he was going to be dying and rising again and that his death was imminent, he wrote in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I'm coming to you. Elsewhere he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because Jesus rose again from the dead and returned to his Father in heaven, we read he was able to send the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, to enter all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so we have the presence of Christ with us all the time, and that makes all the difference in the world. But there's a third reason why this matters so much. In addition to the promise of eternal life and the presence of Christ with us, third, we have resurrection power at work within us. I'd like us to understand that because Jesus defeated death and rose again from the dead, the very power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within us. Unfortunately, we don't see it many times. Paul wrote about this in Ephesians 1, 18 to 20. He wrote, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you'll understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. We have a power in our lives as Christians that means that we don't have to live defeated lives, that we can live in the light and not in the darkness. We have a power to defeat discouragement and overcome temptation and live victorious lives as Christians. But Paul prayed here that we'd be enlightened so that we'd know that, so that we would see it. As the living translation put it, that our hearts would be flooded with this truth, with this light. Now at this time, we're gonna sing another song for you titled, Step Into the Light. For those of you that don't know where you stand with God or you don't know if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he's able to give light and life to us as well. And I want to encourage you to step into the light, to step to Jesus 
And in a minute, I'm going to explain how, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we experience forgiveness of our sin. We become children of God and we receive the gift of eternal life. If you're already a believer here this morning, I want to encourage you to walk in the truth and in the light that you have, to walk in the reality of all that it means to be children of God, to realize that our Savior conquered our worst enemy, death, and He's able to help us as we live our lives. Through Christ, we have the promise of eternal life. We have the presence of a Savior who is always with us and a resurrection power that's at work within us. We're going to sing this song, Step in the Light, and then I'm going to come back and wrap things up with a couple of applications. Step into the light You were never meant to hide You were made to be alive So step into the light
earlier that I thought the darkest moment in history was when we crucified our Creator and that the brightest moment was when He rose again from the dead. After the darkness of night came the dawn of a new day. If you're a believer in Christ here today, I want to encourage you to be mindful of, of what you have in Christ. Our past, our present, our future sins are all forgiven through Jesus Christ who defeated death. We're children of God and in the here and now we have the presence of the light. In fact, we're called to be a light ourselves in this world. I want to encourage you to stay close to Christ so that you won't succumb to the darkness in this world, especially in uncertain times. And in the future, we hold firmly to the hope we have of eternal life. I also want to mention that my earlier talk was really a case for faith. And sometimes people talk about Christianity as being a blind faith. But our faith is not blind. We believe that Jesus rose again. There were eyewitness accounts. And Jesus told us ahead of time it would happen, and it did. And I find no other explanation plausible. Some of you today, though, perhaps don't know where you stand with God. Maybe you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. If that's you, I encourage you to do so today, to come to the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And if you understand here today that you've sinned against God and that you need a savior, a deliverer, if you believe what I've talked about here today, that God loved the world so much he sent his own son 
so that he would die in our place and for our sin. And then he rose again from the dead. And if we put our trust in him, we'll have eternal life. If you want to receive him as your savior, I'd like to close with a prayer that I want to encourage you to pray. It's just a prayer in your own heart to to pray. It's not the prayer itself. It's the faith behind it. I'm asking you to put your trust in Jesus to be your savior. So why don't you say this prayer with me in your own heart? Dear God, I know that I've sinned against you and I need a savior. And I do believe that you sent your son, Jesus, to come into this world, that he took on flesh and blood, that he lived a sinless life so that he might die on a cross in my place and for my sin, that you executed judgment on him for what I did wrong, and he died. But three days later, he rose again from the dead. He defeated sin and death. You accepted the payment that he made on my behalf. And so today, I want to put my trust in Jesus Christ to be my Savior. Today, I want to claim that promise that you gave in John 3, where you said, whoever believes in him will not perish, will not suffer eternal ruin, but instead will have eternal life. I do put my trust in Jesus I do receive him as my savior. And I pray this in Jesus' name and because of what he did for me on that cross. Amen.